It's 5 p.m. and you're drained. Work today was brutal. Your boss yelled at you. Your colleague Nancy claimed she forgot to complete her part of the big report that was due. And the only other person around here who does any work's out on vacation for two weeks. So, yeah, brutal. But then you remember. You've made it. You've fought the good fight and arrived at the most glorious part of the day. That's right. It's happy hour time. And today is Thirsty Thursday at the local bar down the street, which means $1 margaritas and all-you-can-eat nachos. And you're meeting your best friend there in 20 minutes. A calm immediately washes over you. The dreariness of the day subsides. You break into a grin. Because if there's anything more awesome than a delicious libation after a long day at work, it's a cheap delicious libation after a long day at work. It may seem like the least controversial take of all time, happy hour is awesome. But as much as we consumers might view drink discounts as one of our God-given, inalienable birthrights as Americans, not everyone's on the same page. Especially if you live in the wrong place. If you're heading to a bar in, say, Albuquerque, New Mexico, for instance, that $1 margarita would be illegal. Same thing in Raleigh, North Carolina, or Boston, Massachusetts. In Richmond, Virginia, you might not even know the deal existed. But how come? Well, brace yourself, because it's time to talk about the war on happy hour. I'm Jared Dieterle, author of Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, and this is The Right to Drink. Make me a Negroni, margarita old-fashioned. Let's pop the champagne. We've got a right to drink. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show, where we talk about drinking and everything that gets in the way. Today, we're taking a metaphorical road trip to Virginia, New Mexico, and Massachusetts to talk about what happens when happy hour becomes, well, less than happy. Our trip starts in Northern Virginia in 2009, when a man named Jeff Tracy decided to open a restaurant in an area called Tyson's Corner. Chef Jeff, as he's known, was already a very successful restaurateur by this point, owning several well-regarded establishments in nearby Washington, D.C. and Maryland. As experienced as he was, crossing over the border into Virginia for his newest restaurant proved trickier than he'd imagined. That's because Virginia had something that neither D.C. nor Maryland had, a government that effectively outlawed happy hour. You see, a long-standing state law prohibited restaurants from advertising drink specials. This meant that Chef Jeff wasn't allowed to publicly promote happy hours at his new restaurant. He couldn't even have any exterior signs at his restaurant with the words happy hour on them. Now, to be clear, the drink specials themselves weren't illegal. Chef Jeff just couldn't tell his customers about them without running foul of the law. Chef Jeff refused to back down, however, and started to push for change. And five years later, in 2014, Virginia's lawmakers surprisingly decided to listen to him. Well, sort of. They let Chef Jeff and his fellow Virginia restaurant owners use phrases like happy hour at 5 p.m. or drink specials in their advertising, but they still couldn't actually tell their customers what the specific specials were. This meant that they couldn't say something as simple as $3 beers from 5 to 7 or $1 margaritas every Thursday. 
the government even said that using catchy phrases like Wind Down Wednesday or Sunday Fun Day was off limits. Jeff wasn't exactly satisfied with this timid reform, but the prospects for bolder change seemed pretty unlikely. The legislators, having decided that they fixed the problem, moved on. They lost interest in the issue and started ignoring Chef Jeff. But a few more years down the road, in 2018, Chef Jeff got a call out of the blue from a woman named Anastasia Bowden. She said she worked at a nonprofit public interest law firm called the Pacific Legal Foundation. And in her opinion, Virginia's ban on happy hour advertising was blatantly unconstitutional. After all, any law that prohibited a business from speaking about or advertising a legal product or deal was a law that restricted that business's basic First Amendment rights. Anastasia wanted to know if Chef Jeff would be interested in joining forces to challenge Virginia's law in federal court. He was, and by March of that year, the battle was on. My involvement with this case started because I was a Washingtonian at one point, like you, and uh, I knew of the law and I thought it was silly. I would walk down the streets of Virginia and see the billboards that said, happy hour, 7 p.m. And I thought, hmm, that's, uh, that's boring. And I always had an interest in challenging the law. And so when I went into a little bit of a Google rabbit hole about it, I saw that Chef Jeff, Jeff Tracy, uh, who owns several restaurants in the D.C. area, um, he had been very outspoken about this law. And in fact, he had written some sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, tweets about it saying, you know, I'm not allowed by Virginia law to tell you this, but uh, <laughs> we're having happy hour. So I thought that was kind of funny. And I had been to Chef Jeff's myself uh, before Georgetown basketball game. So I just rang him up and I said, would you be interested in being a client? And uh, he was very enthusiastic about it because he felt passionately that this silly law was wrong and was inhibiting his free speech. Anastasia and Chef Jeff were off and running but they had no idea how rocky the road ahead would be. While all lawsuits are contentious, after all, that's kind of the point, the way the Virginia government reacted in this case was the equivalent of throwing a legal temper tantrum. When we filed this case, we had no idea that it was going to become the war that it was with the Attorney General's office. Um, I mean, I'm having <laughs> post-traumatic stress just talking about this because it was truly one of the hardest fought legal battles that I've had. Um, and we filed in the Eastern District of Virginia, we filed in federal court, and the government immediately moved to dismiss the case. So we thought, okay, they're not even gonna answer the complaint. They're not even gonna let us go to discovery. They already wanna fight about it on some technical procedural ground. They're really serious about this. Um, and in fact, you know, we were able to overcome that motion to dismiss. And after that, we found out that they wanted to hire an expert. They wanted to hire an expert at $300 an hour to prove their claim that this law was so necessary for Virginians. Um, so we knew that it was going to be a battle. They engaged in discovery requests. They asked our client to provide documents about every item he had sold in the past several years by hour in each of his restaurants. And he owns many restaurants, many of which are not in Virginia and had nothing to do with this case. Um, we were just deluged with these document requests and it was extremely onerous. But then Anastasia got clever. Sensing that the happy hour advertising ban was already tremendously unpopular with Virginians, 
And as a Virginian, I can attest that, yeah, it was. She took to the court of public opinion. If the state was going to use taxpayer dollars to hire expensive experts at $300 an hour and pay state attorneys to spend hours playing document request games, then why shouldn't the public know about it? Um, And so we started publishing op-eds about it. We just went to Washington Post and we wrote a little article and we said, this is how they're handling this. And uh, that really upset the attorney general's office. (laughs) They didn't like it. And I understand why. It's, I think they found it a little bit embarrassing, but what's embarrassing was their behavior. Here's where it gets weird, though. While Virginia government officials were making Anastasia's and Chef Jeff's life hell, they were also clandestinely preparing for an unconditional surrender. To the judge in the lawsuit, they were saying, this law is extremely important and must stay. But in private? They were meeting with Virginia lawmakers and begging them to pass a bill that would repeal the state's ban on happy hour advertising. And it wasn't hard to convince those legislators, who themselves were tired of having to defend this law, to go along. In early 2019, a repeal bill sailed through the state legislature. It passed 40 to 0 in the state Senate and 94 to 2 in the state House. Just like that, happy hour was set free in Virginia. Advertisements started popping up, promising those $1 margaritas and $10 game day beer bucket specials. The people rejoiced. But the victory still rang a little hollow for Anastasia. You know, Chef Jeff's happy, I'm happy, I'm glad that Virginia is a freer place and a better place to do business now because of our lawsuit. But the unfortunate part about it is that by passing this repeal bill, they mooted our case, and now they're free to go do it again in the future. And in any any other form too, you know, it doesn't have to be a happy hour law, but the same issue now is out there. Can Virginia do this? And we don't have a court order saying they can't. And we were deprived of that because behind our backs, they were lobbying for this repeal bill. And so it's a, it's a bittersweet win. So a bittersweet victory, but a victory nonetheless which is more than can be said in some other states, where the tradition of prohibiting happy hour shows no signs of going away anytime soon. We'll crank it up a notch by heading to New Mexico and Massachusetts to talk about how they treat happy hour next. If you're interested in the things we're talking about on today's podcast, be sure to check out my new cocktail book, Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, which provides a rollicking, recipe-packed tour of America's most insane and laughable booze laws. Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink is available from all major and independent bookstores. Also be sure to check out drinksreform.org, our website and weekly newsletter from the R Street Institute, which covers the intersection of alcohol and our legal system. Why did World War II pave the way for the Martini? How did Central Park influence the Manhattan? And what can a creepy internet message board tell us about resurrecting in aviation? Well, you see a lot when you look at history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. I'm Greg Benson, and coming soon from Heritage Radio Network, this is Back Bar. It's one thing when a law restricts the ability to advertise and talk about an activity. In those situations, like in Virginia, 
the First Amendment can ride to the rescue. But it's tougher when a law forbids that activity in the first place. That's what states like New Mexico do. When Applebee's recently announced plans to roll out their $1 Dollaritas, as glorious an example of unabashed but also kind of gaudy American capitalism as there ever was, they had a problem. They couldn't serve their Dollaritas in New Mexico, which forbids restaurants from discounting drinks to less than half their normal cost. So there may be many advantages to living in New Mexico, warm weather, gorgeous landscapes, but access to Dollaritas is not one of them. For its part, Massachusetts skips the complicated calculations on what level of discount is too much and just bans happy hour discounts entirely. While towns like Boston are known as boisterous, fun-loving, and easy-drinking cities, it's the restaurants and bar owners who are hit hardest by the Bay State's blanket ban on drink specials. Take Sam Treadway, co-owner and bar manager of Back Bar. Sam was crowned the best bartender in Boston by Boston Magazine, and Back Bar is without a doubt one of the best craft cocktail joints in the city. For Sam, like many Massachusetts bartenders, the happy hour ban creates a lot of unintended consequences. So I've worked in Massachusetts on and off for 15 years. I've also worked in Minnesota, Seattle, and Hawaii. And so I definitely recognize that happy hour is a super useful selling point. You can discount alcohol just a tiny bit, but people get that idea in their head that like, oh, this is a little cheaper. Heck yeah, let's go. It's a big draw, and especially when you're trying to do anything and everything to spread out business so that your Friday night, everyone wants to come at like 9 p.m. Well, it'd be really nice if half of those people were there at 6 p.m. or earlier. It is something that is incredibly useful and incredibly frustrating that we can't do in Massachusetts. Sam's point that bars use happy hour to spread out and diversify when they're busy is a good one. If you serve great food and drinks at your restaurant, you can probably expect that you're going to get a nice crowd around 6 or 7 each night. But without happy hour, how many people can you reasonably expect to show up at, say, 4 p.m. on a Tuesday? And for some bars, happy hour is one of their key moneymakers during a given week. Some bars or restaurants are using happy hour as just like a gimmick to drive a, a little bit of extra sales during their slow times. And other bars like really thrive on it where that is like where they do the majority of their sales is during these discounted times. I mean, I worked at a bar where Monday nights was half price bottle of wine night. It was in a college town and it was just hysterical how busy we were on Mondays. But that like generated a huge amount of sales on a Monday. It was a staple that if we didn't have those sales, that would, would be a problem. Because of course, you know, people have to stick around for a while drinking a bottle of wine and then they inevitably are ordering food and it becomes like a big night of sales. When those types of sales drivers get cut off from a restaurant, which already is usually operating on a razor-thin profit margin, it can become hard to make the math work. In Massachusetts, this has led some establishments to desperately seek creative ways to replace that happy hour-shaped hole in their business model. There are a lot of workarounds that bars do. We've done on and off doing food specials like from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can get blank food item that you can't get any other time. And that 
you know, is a draw. We also did something called Genius Hour, which was free Wi-Fi at four o'clock. So trying to advertise like, hey, come in with your laptop, finish your work day and start drinking. So that's like a cutesy way of like trying to promote happy hour. But honestly, none of them, they all pale in comparison to the drink specials that people really associate with happy hour. Other, shall we say, less scrupulous bar owners than Sam push the boundaries even more. The language of the Massachusetts law says that you can't sell alcohol for different prices at different times. But some places, and we're not going to name names here since that's not our style, get around this by, for example, permanently offering a certain beer for $1. And then they just so happen to be out of it at all times except for 4 to 6 on weekdays. So here we can see another problem with a law like the Massachusetts Happy Hour Ban. When you have a hard-to-enforce rule that applies to thousands and thousands of businesses and people spread throughout a state, you'll always have varying degrees of compliance. And the honest bar owners like Sam, they'll try to play by the rules, while the shadier operators will see what they can get away with. Which, in the end, creates an uneven and unfair playing field for everyone. But if Massachusetts law wreaks so much havoc for drinkers and restaurateurs alike, why does it exist? Is it just some legal relic from long ago that never got taken off the books? Surprisingly, unlike most silly alcohol laws, and most of the ones we discuss on the show, Massachusetts' happy hour ban is fairly recent. The state officially implemented the rule in 1984, and the putative reason, at the time, was that it was a response to a tragic and high-profile drunk driving accident that resulted in fatalities. It goes without saying, of course, that trying to prevent drunk driving is a good thing, and we should want the government to try to protect us from situations where alcohol can cause people to hurt themselves and others. After all, protecting public health and safety is why we form governments in the first place. But while sensible people can agree that some version of an anti-drunk driving law is important and should exist, Massachusetts' happy hour ban hasn't really had a discernible effect on drunk driving in the state. While drunk driving rates have declined in Massachusetts since the early 80s, they've done the same across the entire nation. Most researchers attribute this nationwide decline to Mothers Against Drunk Driving and other similar interest groups raising more awareness about the prevalence of drunk driving starting in the 80s, in conjunction with the federal government increasing incentives and pressure on states to adopt lower blood alcohol content levels for what constitutes a DUI. Today, Massachusetts is still close to tops in the nation when it comes to drivers who self-report that they've driven after having too much to drink. And while the state's rate of alcohol-related traffic fatalities is lower than many other states, it's not significantly different than that of its neighbors like Connecticut and Rhode Island. And they do allow happy hour. So, in the end, Massachusetts has seen a healthy decline in DUI rates as a result of a nationwide campaign against drunk driving but it stubbornly maintains a pretty unrelated happy hour ban. And every dollar that goes towards enforcing the happy hour law is a dollar that is not going toward enforcing the state's real DUI laws. It's a good reminder of a truism when it comes to our convoluted system of alcohol regulation. We should spend more time enforcing the good laws and less time over-enforcing the silly ones. That would be a win-win and will make everyone as happy as happy hour itself.
I'm Jared Dieterly, and I wrote today's episode of the show. Our show is produced and edited by Greg Benson, host of The Speakeasy and Back Bar, a new podcast coming soon from the Heritage Radio Network. The music is written, produced, and recorded by Jessica Lee Graves. The cover art for the show is created by Ann Phelan, and I'd also like to thank Bill Gray and the R Street Institute, as well as today's guests, Sam Treadway of Back Bar and Anastasia Bowden. And if you enjoyed today's show, check out my new book, Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, as well as drinksreform.org. Our next episode will answer the age-old question of why in the hell can I get my favorite IPA from Vermont delivered to my doorstep? So be sure to join us in two weeks for more about drinking and everything that gets in the way. Make me a Negroni, margarita old-fashioned, let's pop the champagne, Wee.